You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny summer Davis day. Oh, Don, it's so nice to be in summer. Summery weather today going up to a high of 103 here in the Sacramento Valley, at least on our side of it. Uh, A little mini heat wave happening today, yesterday, tomorrow. One of our typical three-day heat waves here in the Sacramento Valley. And the numbers have been all over the place. It's been very entertaining with different staff members looking at their phones. And each of them seems to have a different weather app. Mm, and one yeah. of them was saying, it's going to be 107. And I'm going, no, the weather service has 102 and so on. Let's just get right down to the actual numbers. We are broad- we are recording this show Wednesday, August 16th, 2023 to broadcast on Thursday, August 17th. Today's high is going to be 103. Yesterday was 102. Uh, night temperatures have been a little uncomfortable by our standards. It was 65 was the low last night, and that's going to be the low tonight, partly cloudy, which is not a phrase we really like to see here in the summer all that much. Uh, Thursday will be 97. So this little heat spell will be past us Thursday night, 62. Friday, listen to this, folks, 87 degrees. 87. Friday, <laughs> Friday night, 60 degrees. Saturday, 91. Saturday night, 61. Sunday, 88. Sunday night, 62. Monday, 88. Monday night, slight chance of showers. That, w- that one got me. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. And Tuesday, slight chance of showers, 86. Listeners in Southern California, you probably already heard from your local weather casters that you've got a storm down there, tropical storm, aiming at Baja, California. I follow several meteorologists on Twitter. One of them was running a whole bunch of, you know, reviewing all the models that are out there and saw this thing heading straight towards Southern California and said that given the strength of it, given the differences between it and the high pressure ridge that's off to the east and given the amount of moisture in it, it could be a record setter. It could cause some weather consternation down there. If you want more information about that, I just want to mention Dr. Daniel Swain, who's from UC Davis originally, uh, holds virtual office hours. Okay, He's on Twitter. He's on various other social media forum, but he does virtual office hours. He started these several months ago. Wednesday, 2 p.m. Uh, says this may be another long one. That's today that, that I'm... That I'm telling you this it'll be yesterday by the time you hear it but it's there you can go to dr daniel swain's site just do a google search s-w-a-i-n as he says quite a lot of ground to cover a growing focus will be the potential for increasingly active weather in california due to possible close approach from a weakening tropical storm sunday and monday so you may have some rather interesting weather down there for the weekend and we might get brushed by a little bit of it see some more of those thunderstorms that happened up over in the Oh, Solano and Contra Costa counties a couple days ago, uh, a little overcast, a little mugginess by our standards, but lower temperatures overall for the next few days. Uh, we've had now, oh, I think we've had four or five of these little two and three day episodes where it's over 100 degrees. Interesting how much more coastal influence we've been having 
here uh, than other areas in the valley, obviously, and it's stronger this year. So that when we were seeing 102 as our high yesterday for Davis, 107 in Sacramento, 108, 109 further up the valley. We're just getting a lot more coastal influence on our weather, which is making it much more pleasant. So another two to three day episode in the upper 90s to low 100s and then back into great tomato pollination weather is what I call temperatures in the mid 80s to low to as close to 90, 91 degrees. Just a reminder, it's the middle of August. It takes about seven to 10 weeks from fruit set to harvest for tomatoes. So fruit that sets in the middle of August, you will be harvesting and enjoying mid to late October, which in our climate, you've still got plenty of time for them to ripen. Very quickly want to comment that I'm seeing a lot of up and down comments about vegetable gardens, uh, both on you know Facebook groups. Every weekend, I get a chance to talk to one of the guys who mans the um, of master gardeners table down at the farmer's market. He said they had more than 40 people come up to their table this last weekend to ask questions and a whole lot of more about vegetables that weren't doing real well. And our consensus is people aren't watering enough. We can come back to that topic, but that was it. it this is a good year for vegetable production in the Sacramento Valley. We've had plenty of pollination weather. More than 50% of our days have been suitable for pollination weather for tomatoes and peppers and all that other crowd. And so it is not a high temperature phenomenon. It's almost always, once we dig in a little deeper and ask how they're watering, it almost always comes back to that. But we'll certainly talk more about that as we always do. You know, Don, I am rethinking our pattern, our habit, of always doing the weather at the beginning of the show, because every time you do that and you say what it's like here and then what it's like in Sacramento or up the, mm -hmm. you know, we're getting going to get all those people moving to Davis. Don. <laughs> we have to be careful what we say. Oh, yes. It's miserably hot here. Don't even think about it. <laughs> Don't even think about it. It's always in the hundreds. You know, when I tell people we've, we've had about a dozen, 12 to 15 days, 100 or above this year, and that's normal. That's that. Yeah. We've also had at least that number in the 80s. We've had more than that number in the 80s. That's also normal. Our side of the valley, when I opened our, our business, Redwood Bar Nursery in 1981, my business partner for the first 10 years lived in Fair Oaks, which if you know the area is on the other side of Sacramento. We frequently commented about the striking climate and weather differences between East Sacramento and Davis. He drove over the causeway every day and back. And, you know, it was about, what's that, about 30 miles roughly. If we were 95, it was 100 in Fair Oaks. If we were cooling off at six in the evening, it didn't cool off over there until nine or 10 in the evening. It did cool off, but it took that much longer. The other thing he really noticed, for those of you who think I'm talking about some kind of paradise here on, <laughs> in Davis, he really noticed the wind. He would drive in from Sacramento, nice breezy day, and he'd hit the yellow causeway and we'd be getting one of our north or south wind events and he said it was double the wind speed so we definitely do have gradations and that you can see them and it used to be easier to explain to people because everybody used the sunset western garden book look at the map find an old edition the maps have not changed in the sunset western garden book with respect to the climate zone since it was first put out in the 1950s look at the map and i would always show this when i would give talks to explain the difference between sunset climate zones and usda climate zones sunset climate zones you could look at it and go oh that's the delta breeze causing zone 14. Look, Woodland's in zone eight, and it's only 10 miles north of Davis. How can it be in a different climate zone? Because the Delta breeze doesn't get there as quickly or at all sometimes due to reasons of topography. So it's our, it looks like they took an overlay 
of geography and put it over the USDA zones is what I often say. We are in zone 14. He was gardening in zone eight, driving through zone nine to get to zone 14. How can there be that much of a difference? Coastal influence, that's really what it is. Okay, let's talk about some events and things like that. I should mention, of course, David KDRT is community radio, and that means we rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show, That's Life, Jazz After Dark, all the other cool programming here at KDRT, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. And while you're there, click on the schedule the guide and look at some of the other cool programming here at KDRT. Well, I wanted to talk about one of the shows, and it's a sad story. I don't know if you all know, but Maui had a huge fire and wiped out much of the city of Lahaina, a beautiful city, an old city. Um, And one of our folks here on the radio station does a Hawaiian music show called Namele o Hawaii. And this last show, which was the 11th, um, by the way, if you ever want to find her, go to kdrt.org, look at the schedule tab, and you'll see my show on Thursday at 11, and then our show, the Davis Garden Show, at noon, and then at 1 o'clock is Namelio Hawaii, and we all repeat at different times. But So she, she, this is the write-up about that show. Wildfires have scorched the Hawaiian island of Maui this week, with at least 55 people killed and thousands of people driven from their homes as of this morning, August 11th. Namele o Hawaii host Beth Post has dedicated the first hour of her program for August 10th to honoring Maui. Uh, she says, these wildflowers have blown, blown through all sorts of land, flattening the very precious town of Lahaina and displacing thousands of people. Our thoughts are with Maui, with the ohana we all have. Many of us have friends or family who live on the island. Some have lost homes or beloved pets or have been displaced. We send our aloha to those, to all of those and all the people who are sending their aloha as well. We can lift one another up as we lift up Maui. You can listen to music shows on KDRT for two weeks, and then they disappear from the archives. If you haven't, if you click on the RSS feed, it will download to your computer, so then you can listen to it at your leisure. But I would urge you to get over there to listen to that program within the next few days, because it will only be there for two weeks. And that goes for all of the music shows here at KDRT. Beth Post, Nameli, O Hawaii. Events that are coming up. Uh, Tree Davis has a uh, stewardship neighborhood event coming up at the N Street Park. N Street Park, which is over here at East Davis. That'll be 8 a.m. And that's Saturday this 19th. What these are is you'll go in there and you'll help pull weeds out from under trees and you'll help. There'll be a pile of mulch and there'll be some wheelbarrows and you can spread mulch around. The arborist will check the staking on the trees and do a little pruning if necessary. You can learn a lot and it's actually very fun. We get great turnout for these, but they always need volunteers, especially by the way, in August and September, because a lot of our volunteers our students and they aren't back yet so if you want to help out with something that's saturday the 19th at the n street park and then in september two opportunities on the 16th at barovetto park another stewardship event as we call it and on september 30th memorial grove for information about all of these events and what you need to do and a little link to sign up they you don't they just want you to sign up so they have a rough idea how many people are going to show up i can tell you during the pandemic we sometimes had 40 50 people show up at these events that's great but you kind of want to plan for that. So it'd be nice if you would go ahead and register. Go to treedavis.org. 
Well, we have our big show today. A really big show, as they say. <laughs> really? No, you got to say it right. A really big shoe. Uh, Anybody, no, that would be a size 12. Every, all of you who remember Ed Sullivan, he said, we've got a really big shoe for you tonight. <laughs> anyway, um, referring back to a previous show when we were talking about seed potatoes and I was lamenting the fact that I wanted to plant potatoes, didn't have a seed potato. And we, we talked about the fact that if you just have one in your cupboard and it has started sprouting, that means it's sprouting. You can plant it and cut it up into pieces, you know, let it set for a day so it crusts over a little bit and then plant it. Well, we got a, a message, an email from Caroline saying, as I understand it, you can order seed potatoes from woodprairie.com. Mm -hmm. That's the Wood Prairie family farm year round. I've ordered from them and love them. Good selection, great quality. Caroline is in Davis. So we went and looked at woodprairie.com to find out if we could uh, tell you that yes, you they'll ship all the time or no, they'll only ship. So we don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I've put in a, a voicemail message to them. So maybe next week we'll have that. But we came across this. I wanted to read you some information that they have here. And it says seed dormancy. We harvest the new crop of potatoes in late September, and we start shipping orders then. However, since the potatoes are just coming out of the ground, they need a dormancy period of four to eight weeks before they will sprout. The best conditions to sprout potatoes are about 70 degrees and in the dark. So our seed will not reliably sprout before October or November. I have read that keeping the seed potatoes in a plastic bag with a little moisture will speed up the sprouting. And then um, there's another section that says storage conditions. And someone asked, you know, how should you store them at, at that effort? And she said, potatoes would store perfectly in a second refrigerator kept just around <laughs> 40 degrees. A second refrigerator. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you don't want to put them in the main refrigerator because that fluctuates too much. Also, you might want to write on them if they're in the main refrigerator don't eat these. <laughs> so. Well, the question, the person who wrote in said, we have an extra refrigerator. I'd yeah. like to use it if possible. We don't have a root cellar, mm -hmm. et cetera. Understand this farm is in Maine and yeah. how they handle things in the dead of winter is very different than us in Davis, California. It's also a great place to grow potatoes. And I think they know what they're talking about. So I'm really, really happy to get this referral. Woodprairie.com, Wood Prairie Family Farm. I love businesses like this in Bridgewater, Maine. So we'll find out more. And it's all, it looks like it's all certified organic and all that kind of thing. We'll see if, if they actually do ship you around. It sounds like they do. I would comment uh, the typical pattern is potatoes for resale for purpose of planting the next year are harvested in the late summer or fall as, you know, as normal and then stored and then shipped out to all of us. Uh, I get them from a broker in Indiana who gets them in February and stores them until he can ship them comfortably knowing that they won't freeze in the middle in shipment. Um, that's the usual pattern. So most of us get them February, March, as late as early April. I really want to get them as early as I can in California, but we don't have California suppliers for potatoes. And so we have customers who are champing at the bit to plant them in the midsummer and they can't. Well, I would suggest one thing you certainly can do. You can keep a handful of them in a paper bag in the refrigerator and just plant them in the summer. You can store potatoes for three or four months with no problem. So you might consider that. But one other thing I would mention, there's this funny thing that we call these seed potatoes because they're not seeds, they're potatoes that you're growing, you're cutting up a potato and planting it. It's not a seed like a seed like you normally think of. 
It's an eye. It's a, it's a, it's the potato is what you're planning. When you cut it up, you find one of those places it's going to sprout. It's called an eye because it looks like an eye. Mm-hmm. And you make sure there's an eye in everything you cut up. And I've literally never seen a a way you could cut a potato where there wouldn't be an eye. So you don't even need to look for it. If they (laughs) dimple, you don't even worry about that. Just cut it in half or quarters or whatever you got. That's all fine. But they're not seeds. And this confuses people because on our seed rack, there are potato seeds. Oh. This is weird, but new. There's a variety called Clancy, which came on the market a couple of years ago. And you're growing actual seeds. Okay. Not, not potatoes that we're calling seeds. These are actual seeds. Clancy grows in uh, a little diversity of colors, as they say at Botanical Interest, one of the companies that sells them, happens to be the company we have a seed rack of. Great quality. It won the 2019 All-America Selections Award. They're small. These are going to be like new potato size, and they're both round and fingerling shaped. So this is not a completely consistent potato like you would get from uh, potatoes seed starts uh, which we got to come up with another game for now if you cut up (laughs) one potato they're all going to be the same thing right these are seeds now they're they're reasonably consistent but it's a mix of shades between rose gold and red it's a creamer potato that refers to the texture pale yellow white to white interior creamy texture when cooked great for mashed potatoes and things like that and you grow it just the same as all the others except you're starting the seeds and this company pelletizes the seeds just to make them easier to handle because potato seeds are pretty small so you could buy these seeds, you can buy them on seed racks at companies that sell botanical interests brand. Other companies also sell this one. You can buy them online. You could start them at the same time you start your tomatoes and peppers somewhere in the middle there, probably. You know, you do your peppers in January, you do your tomatoes February to March. Well, do the potatoes somewhere in between because that's about how long the seed would take to produce a seedling that you would then plant out about the same time you're planting peppers and tomatoes, which is sometime April to May, and you would be harvesting July or August. So there is another option for you. If you've had trouble finding potato starts, what we traditionally call seed potatoes, you can grow potato seeds. And this is getting (laughs) really confusing. So just know that there are some seed racks that contain seeds of potatoes that will grow into actual potato tubers. So So I know that I know that you are a big guy for doing seeds and and then taking starts and then transplanting them yes. but i'm big on just putting them right where they're going to grow can i take those potato seeds mm-hmm. and s- sprinkle them around my my barrel probably now? yeah probably and- well, now uh, that's a good question this is something that i would have to oh, you know what all right i love to experiment for you folks I'll pull a pack <laughs> of seeds off the rack and plant them and see what happens because they're okay. on there yeah i sell i sell these seeds and you can buy them online botanical interest is just one of the companies that sells the clancy potato seed not to be confused with seed potatoes <laughs> <laughs> oh don we get we have so much fun confusing people don't we? well it's really funny how how people are um uh, very fixated on onions and potatoes. Our staff can tell you stories about those old guys and their onions who are already beginning to contact us for their November onions and the folks in their potatoes. It's these are things, you know, these are very, by the way, they're very low profit items for the average garden center. We don't sell a ton of them. And they're, then you're talking about a few cents each for these things, but uh, they really want them and they want them when they want them. And we have to go through this with onions every year. Our onions arrive in November and starting in September, we get these old guys, the phone call, are your onions in yet? No, they're not in yet. We'll call you when they come in. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) And potatoes, it's just a little confusing because yes, here in California, we can plant midsummer. 
and get great results. It's just that's not true in a lot of other parts of the country. Thank you very much for the link. We always appreciate hearing from customers and listeners and all that, people who have ideas. And this is a, a wonderful resource for a lot of folks. I urge you to check out Wood Prairie Family Farm in Bridgewater, Maine. All right, let's go back to the mail. And Mime has written to us saying, Hola, long time no talk. I hope the both of you are doing well. Lately, I've noticed white woolly blobs on my <laughs> apple tree. I've never seen them before. I also noticed some white sores or blotches or something on the tree trunk. I Googled it and said this is due to woolly aphids. See the attached pictures. Thank you for the pictures, by the way. They're very useful. Are these woolly aphids? And what should I do? Is this the beginning of the end of my tree? Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure what caused this. The only thing that has changed this year that I know is if I've some planted some tomatoes, zinnias, and sunflowers around the apple tree and put a drip line there, I ran out of space in the yard, so I decided to pepper in some plants around the tree island, uh, the apple island. And these days it gets a good soak once a week or twice as needed because of the tomatoes are there. Would this have caused some overwatering for the apple tree? Prior to this, the apple tree only got watered about every other week or even less. It's a 15-year-old tree or so, Granny Smith apples. And I live in San Jose zone 9B. Granny Smith is actually a great choice in that zone. Um, first of all, yes, those are woolly aphid. Woolly aphid is a relatively host-specific aphid. When I use the term host-specific, that means it only goes on certain kinds of plants. Sometimes host specificity is very specific, like only on apples. This one goes on apples and its cousins. You'll see it very commonly on crab apples, sometimes on pears, maybe on pyracantha. These are all members of the poem group of the rose family. And so if you happen to have any of those others that are cousins of apples nearby, you should check them as well. Usually moved about by ants which carry the aphids from one tree to another generally you find them down on the trunk very heavily around any root suckers or, or stem suckers that are coming up can progress further up the trunk they do a, they leave a, a, a residual damage when you get a large population of them you'll find sort of a scarring almost a gall formation nearby where they've been but they're relatively easy to manage although hard to eradicate they blast off quite readily with a with a high pressure jet stream of water you know just put a jet nozzle on your hose and go out there and just go to town on them if you have trouble with that just go ahead and get a pressure washer if you know someone that has one that you can borrow or if you happen to own one go at them you can just blitz them off there with no problem and by the way when you do that it kills aphids you you they won't be crawling back up to your tree so that's a very effective way to manage them the difficulty is you won't get at all of them. Some of them are hidden down on the stem, a little underground, perhaps. Some of them are down crowded in where the sucker comes out from the stem or where it's attached. So you'll have to keep after them. And some of them have gone further up the tree, very likely. Like most aphids, they don't kill a tree. Uh, they, there are things that feed on them. There are natural predators. So they're generally kept more or less in balance. But if there are ants present, the ants will protect them from the predators. And so you may have to go after them yourself to keep knocking the population down. It's rare to need to spray for woolly aphid. But if you did need to, one, you're mostly concentrating whatever you spray on the trunk or the lower branches, not the top of the tree. They're rarely up high in the tree. Second, you can use something as simple as one of the oils. Um, 
The same kind of oil that we use for dormant spray in the wintertime can be used as a, at a summer rate, usually with check the label. It's almost always on the label. Usually it's half the strength of the winter dormant rate. So there's a summer rate and a winter rate that will smother any that you spray it on. It'll smother a lot of ants while you're at it. So it's helpful in that regard. And that can knock down the population as well. Uh, those are probably, that's probably the most effective thing to use on it. It was just literally the physical removal with, with a hard blast of water. And if necessary, an oil spray. Be cautious with oil sprays on foliage. When the temperature is above about 85 degrees, that's the threshold that I use for all sprays, but oil in particular, with a film of oil on the leaf on a hot day, you can really toast the foliage. Shaded trunk, I wouldn't be concerned about, but further up on the tree, I would be. Basically, just don't spray when it's really hot. But uh, the, this is something, it's a very low toxicity material that you're using just where you need to use it. So it's not something that you're going to be having to drench the whole tree anyway. So I'd start with water and I would consider oil if that doesn't work and be aware that you're going to be managing this population, not eradicating it. They're just one that's particularly difficult to completely eradicate but they rarely get so severe that you have to go anywhere beyond the measures that I just just mentioned. So a question for you, when you talk about ants moving things around and, you know, setting up farms on your vegetables mm. oh, and all that do, stuff, yes. ants, ants can be a real challenge. So here's my question. And I heard this years ago before we started doing the show and all that. If you have a tree trunk where the tree is not physically touching anything else, mm -hmm. then if you put something sticky around the tree trunk, and, and we had this black tar-like some substance that we stuck around the tree trunk, it was about an inch wide, and uh, ants can't crawl across it, and so yeah. therefore the ants can't farm that tree. Is, is any of that true? Does any of it help? The product in question now is called Tangle Foot, and it does work. It makes a physical barrier that the plants, the, the ants can't crawl over. Um, it's a sticky material. What we, what has been observed is if you put it directly on the trunk of a tree, it can do some harm over time. It dries up and, and can perhaps do some injury. So most commonly nowadays, it's applied on a layer of something like masking tape to be removed later, but it does make a physical barrier. It's used for a variety of things, keeping ants out of trees, keeping coddling moth larvae from crawling back up the tree and so so forth. Tanglefoot is the name of the product, not the spray version. There's a spray version that's used for making sticky traps for white flies. This is the tube stuff. Looks like toothpaste, really sticky, resinous material. And you just put a layer of it. Yes, it makes a physical barrier. That, that can be effective. It's just that we do understand now that it shouldn't be applied directly to the trunk. It should be applied on something that can be then removed later. So that you put on masking tape or something like that, but it does work. However, generally you don't find ants taking these aphids further up into the tree. Um, I have had a lot of people coming in with another white fuzzy thing on trees, uh, which is a cottony cushion scale, not on apples. That's usually on citrus or on, most commonly on citrus, but on and roses. And well, it's interesting, the hosts that I have seen cottony cushion scale on, first of all, when you tell people this is a scale insect, they tend to look at you like, no, that's not scale. That's some kind of mold. Oh, that's fungus. It's that's huge. It's got to it's be a mushroom. Like it's, I said, no, this is a scale and it's just an armored scale, which means it's protected with a with an outer skeleton, not just the exoskeleton, but the stuff on it that makes it very impervious to pesticides. Uh, it's a gross one. It's a strange pest. It is almost always on citrus initially. That was what it became a pest in California on first. And then we have found it on roses, Nandina, 
Potosporum and Hardenbergia. Those are the five things that I've found cottony cushions scale on. Those have nothing in common. <laughs> They're not even the same family. They're not even related, but those are the plants I've found cottony cushions scale on. So I have to assume that it could move on to other things. It's clearly not host specific on citrus. Many, many, many years ago, cottony cushion scale became a major pest on the Meyer lemon orchards in California, which is, this is, we're talking about like a hundred years ago. And it was the first example of a highly successful biological control program. They went back to where the cottony cushion scale came from. They found a little tiny leather lady wing, lady bird beetle, ladybug as we call them. Doesn't look anything like what you're thinking of. It doesn't look like our ladybugs within this area. It's a ladybird beetle that's very small that feeds specifically on cottony cushion scale. And they were introduced into California and released in a number of places, particularly Meyer lemon orchards and other citrus orchards where the cottony cushion scale had gotten severe enough that it was affecting growth and yield. So there was a reason to do this. It established beautifully. Almost any mass of cottony cushion scale that you find, if you leave it alone, if you can bring yourself to just leave it alone for a few months to a year, you will go in and start finding a bunch of them have holes in them and are being killed by this little tiny ladybird beetle. And uh, probably the problem will solve itself. But as with other types of scale and aphids, ants will move them from tree to tree. So what they like to do is carry the little crawler stage, the, the young ones, down and run along your drip line up to the next tree over. And pretty soon you find them on the next tree and the next tree. That can be true of any scale insect. Typically, they're heavily clustered in one region on the tree. It is not unreasonable at all to simply prune out that branch and throw it away. Mechanical removal is an approved method of pest control, and it works really well. But you do have to monitor and make sure it hadn't spread further on the tree. This one, although it is attached on there, it's not attached real well. And you'll find just a regular nozzle on a hose that allows you to make a jet stream. You can take off almost all of the cottony cushion scale if you can get at them, if they're not way down inside the tree or entangled in the Hardenbergia vine or something like that. You can get at them pretty well and knock them off. And again, once knocked off, they can't get back up. So you can manage those very effectively with a strong jet spray of water. And again, oil sprays would help if the crawler stages have gotten away from you. But the other thing is to check nearby. So if you've got your Meyer lemon, you've got a bunch of cottony cushion scale on it. Seems like you're having a really hard time getting control. Walk over to the pittosporum hedge 10 feet away and see if they're on there because there's a pretty good chance they are. And in which case you better broaden your control measure strategies to the nearby shrubbery. But again, the only things I've seen them on so far, if you've got any other host plants, let us know. Citrus, pittosporum tabira or pittosporum tabira, nandina, hardenbergia, which is the lilac vine, and roses. And again, no relationship between those. So I wouldn't say that this is a host specific um, insect pest, but it has a pretty narrow range of host preferences. My guess is that that they were on this rose when I got it. Yep. Uh, because they were tucked in underneath where the binding was holding the stakes on it and stuff like that. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's if very people common. want to know what this looks like, imagine a Q-tip that you get all fluffed up and fuzzy and then double the size and that's what it looks like well in the case of the cottony cushion scale you then put an armored coat over that on the mature ones so they look like a little tank they are the mature ones are quite impressive this woolly aphid looks like a froth of fluffy stuff uh they both look have a lot of white stuff that helps protect them so if you try and spray with a conventional pesticide it may not even get at them but the oil will smother them so great question uh good news is your problem is only going to be on your apples i do want to make one comment about apples i've grown i have a lot of them uh apples and pears they need a lot of water 
they're not drought tolerant. I ran a line when we put in our, what you might call our current family orchard. <laughs> I've had various iterations of this around the farm of peaches, plums, pluots, nectarines, aprium. And down at the end, I did, I already had a hedge of apples. And so I added more apples and pears and Asian pears. And I have tried watering them all together. And that has worked great some years. Uh, it's a drip line that runs for all of them. They all have the right number of emitters every couple of weeks. The whole thing gets a really deep soaking. That works great for all of them, except during extreme heat or long periods of dry, windy weather, the apples and the pears are clearly stressed. And so I've taken to separately watering. Fortunately, I put them in one area for this reason, separately watering them intermittently in between running the drip line for the whole orchard because they need water about once a week, a good thorough soaking about once a week in our climate, Sacramento Valley, USDA zone, excuse me, zone 14, sunset zone 14, USDA zone nine, um, really good watering once a week seems to be necessary. And if you don't do it, the fruit that's exposed to the sun gets sunburned, the plants get stressed, they just don't perform real well. This isn't really apple or pear country, quite honestly. Folks here, they're really more of a tree for mountain areas or for cooler climates and so forth. There are varieties that do well, Granny Smith being a good example of one that does well, even throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, like San Jose. And you should ask locally about apples that are suitable for your region, because there are thousands of apple varieties, dozens in the trade, hundreds available online, and some of them need 1,200, 1,500 chilling hours, which we just don't get here usually. Some of them clearly not adapted to our climate. The texture is not great. This is not a place to grow Macintosh apples or your familiar New England or Mid-Atlantic state apples, but there are apple varieties that do well here, and your local garden center, if they're well run, should have those. They won't just have the random ones of the the chains want to send to them. Stay away from Red Delicious. Stay away from, you know, East Coast apples. Ask what's appropriate locally. Anders, Granny Smith, Gravenstein, Fuji, which does well everywhere. Golden Delicious does extremely well everywhere. And there are others. But remember, this is a higher water fruit tree than most of your other fruit trees. No matter what rootstock it's on, I have just found apples and pears need more frequent watering. They're just not drought tolerant really at all. Well, I wanted to thank our listener who sent in this lovely picture of her backyard and talking about what was planted there, little stories. I won't read the whole thing, but thanks for sending us the picture and thanks for sending us the information. We love to hear that. The one little bit I will add is the sunflowers, which I love, are accidental plantings. I had a packet of sunflower seeds and was planting them on another patch, but the packet dropped and the seeds scattered everywhere. That's okay. It turned out wonderfully, and it does look very pretty. She also said she has some uh, evil four-legged creatures who come into her yard, and so around the base of the tomato cages, she has wrapped netting on the lower area just to keep those those little puppy noses out of the plants. I've had I've seen sunflowers come up in a wide range of places, and one of the most common sources appears to be um, bird feeders. <laughs> yeah, that's why pop. that's why when we have bird feeders, it's either hummingbird feeders, which is sugar water, right. or it's chopped sunflower seeds, so chopped. that there is no, they're chopped. There's no holes, which means there's a lot less mess. And if anything does fall to the ground, it will not grow. 
Good question. Does that broaden the range of birds that make use no. of them? No. No. What what happens is um, different birds have different yeah. favorite foods, of course. If you wanted uh, goldfinches, for example, you'd put out a, a seed uh, sock with Niger oh, those seeds. Are great. Those, those are little black yeah. things. And yeah. they're, they're running up and down and holding on and doing sideways and everything. But if you want just general the the white crown sparrows the golden crown sparrows the juncos the house finches the anything that likes seeds then um chopped sunflower seeds work well and if you put it low to the ground you'll include the morning doves and that sort of thing if you put it up too high a lot of those ground feeders won't go to it if you use the mix, and I put that in quotation marks, that they sell in a lot of chain stores. What you'll find is wherever you are, you put that out and your birds will come and go, ooh, I don't want that one, ooh, I don't want that one. <laughs> and they'll fling them onto the ground until they get to something they like. Right. And I tell you, those little black round things, almost none of them like and they sprout <laughs> so so i, I it's <laughs> i think you're better off with chop, chop, sunflowers. chop sunflowers okay that's useful yeah. now if you want the bigger birds like the jays and the mm-hmm. mockingbirds and the you know back east the woodpeckers and things sunflower seeds with holes on it those black sunflowers those are good too but ah. that gives the bird something to open up, takes one away, opens it up and eats it. Whereas the little birds simply go in and go, oh, smorgasbord. Well, you first the first species you mentioned, mm-hmm. white, white, crown white crown sparrows, there's a really easy way to get them to your garden. Just plant your water <laughs> vegetables. <laughs> and put your vegetables too close to the head. <laughs> right. And by the way, uh, when do they come back? Oh, yeah, well eventually <laughs> no I mean, what's, what's the date of their return to the sacramento valley don't they all come back in, in the october? fall october right as it late september early october yeah, okay so right about the time we're putting out broccoli lettuce kale yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll rant that's about what, that later they're cute that's birds, why so. i say keep those things away from the bushes in other words those white crown sparrows are are very careful they don't like cats they're afraid that they're going to get swooped on by hawks if they get too far from the bush and so anything that is within six or eight or ten feet of a bush that's fair game but if you get further away the further away from the bush you are the less likely that bird is to go over there and eat those seeds Okay, so uh, fall, fall and winter. John is smiling because he doesn't believe me. <laughs> oh, I believe you. I believe you. Keep well, now, didn't you do that? Didn't you do that yeah. one time? You had a whole row of things, and the yeah. one at the end next to the bushes, they got That's, eaten by sparrows. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very clear. They go, they come in out of the cover, and they go to the first things they can eat. I, I believe they'd probably go further in if they could, but you're right that they probably are spooked by it. Simplest way to draw jays and mockingbirds in your garden, in my experience, is plant a mulberry tree. That's worked like a charm yep. for me. Yep. Uh, if you happen or to want throw some peanuts out there, they love. <laughs> Uh, peanuts in the show. All right. All right. So what's next on the mailbag here? All right. Well, next we have, well, this is an answer to something I don't have the question for, (laughs) but it's something you talked about before. And the link in this answer is to the UC IPM uh, rose sawflies, also called rose slugs. Yeah, I made a mistake. That's what this is. I made a mistake last week. I'm pretty sure I made a mistake anyway. We got it. We had a question about holes in the leaves of a rose, and I went on in some detail about weevils and weevils feeding in from the side and, and tattering the leaves and stuff. And then I thought, wait a minute. And I went back and I looked at the picture. 
And I maybe I, I posted the picture with the description of last week's show at KDRT.org. So if you want to look at the picture of the listener in Marin who was having a problem with holes in the leaves of her rose bush, um, there it is. Those holes were not coming in from the edge. I looked closer. No, they were all they were all parts of the leaf, sometimes in the center of the leaf. And I realized that I had inadvertently just glanced at it and not looked in more detail. Yes, ro- uh, there are weevils. There's a fuller rose weevil and there's the black vine weevil. And they crawl up onto a plant and they start eating on the side of the leaf and eat in. And so what you get is a, a tattered pattern from the edge in. But these have holes right in the center. I think what you have actually, and I apologize for my incorrect answer last week, is rose sawfly, or we call them rose slugs, rose slugs, and they're not a slug, and they're not a caterpillar, so they look sort of like a caterpillar, they don't look like a slug, although they're a little shiny, so I suppose that name is not totally, totally off. Um, The good news about them is they don't have, I think they only have one or two generations, they can do a lot of damage in a short period of time, a sawfly is not a bee, it's not a butterfly it's a different group of organisms and uh, so the typical spray you would use if someone said you had a caterpillar it won't work on them bt sprays don't work on softfly larvae it's uh, not a slug so the name rose slug is inappropriate you wouldn't be using a slug bait or a snail bait that won't work on them either uh, mostly we hand pick them and uh, you can probably you can find them on the leaf when they're really active you can just turn the leaf over and there they will be looking like a slightly shiny caterpillar again not a caterpillar and the good news is they do a whole bunch of damage all at once and then that tends to be it and from the picture i could see new growth was already coming on unaffected so probably the problem has passed they're frustrating when they get in to that nice big flush of growth that comes on in the spring that has us all excited and they get on there and they eat the rose bud all they do is they crawl up to the top and they eat the rosebud well it's still tiny and they take big chunks out of it and it just doesn't develop properly so it looks like something came along and took big bites out but it actually was small bites out of the bud when it was smaller Again, when people bring it in, I say, good news, the problem is done. Don't worry about it. It's already passed. But that looks to me like what you have. What I do think is kind of funny is I put the ucanr.edu link, which is UC Agricultural and Natural Resources, uh, one of the most phenomenal resources on the Internet. It used to be ipm.ucdavis.edu, so old-time listeners will remember we would refer to that. Now everything there is ucanr.edu. They had three links about soft flies. Two of them are dead. <laughs> Two of the links don't work. The other one was to a publication from 1908. And I think that's great. (laughs) So they're not really updated on all of that, but they do have some information there. And I think it's charming to look through a book that's been uh, scanned from 1908 and gives you some great pictures. You can see what you're dealing with. Uh, So I'll try and post this link for you and you can get a little little more information. But ucanr.edu rose slug is the information you need. And the good news is the problem is gone for this season. I can't really tell you whether it's going to come back next year or not. Most people who deal with this have it one time and it isn't a huge problem the next year and then sometimes they come back i'd have to try and find out and i will try and find out for you where they're overwintering or whether you have a plant nearby that is the the you know the host source for the 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 habitat for this particular pest not really worth spraying for because by the time you notice all that damage 
they're done. And as far as I know, one or two generations and that's it. So this isn't like the red humped caterpillar where you're going to get six or seven generations. It's not like the uh, citrus leaf miner where you're going to have 10 to 12 generations. No, it happens in the late spring and early summer. And then that's the end of it. Typically, let us know if it continues. But I believe to correct my previous answer, that's a rose softfly larva injury. I want to read a little bit from this solutions page, uh, because I think this is important information. It's talking about exactly what Don said, you, you pick them off and whatever. And it says, do not use this, 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 this. And then it goes on and says, Spinoset can be adversely, adversely, can adversely affect bees and certain natural enemies of this soft light. Because it is toxic to bees for several hours after the spray has dried, do not apply spinosad to plants that are flowering. Now, in our climate, roses flower all the time. Well, they make an interesting point there. Spinosad has become very popular because it's an organic pesticide, but it's a broad spectrum insecticide. It's not as highly specific like BT, as I said, won't work on these because they're not caterpillars. BT only works on caterpillars. It's a very safe organic pesticide. Spinosad has become very popular as an alternative to older materials like carbaryl and malathion and things that people used to use. It has that same range of pest control. It's a non, it's not specific. And so if you spray it, yes, you're likely to be harming beneficial insects. You will be harming beneficial insects. If you spray and leave residue on the plant when bees are active, it will injure them. So you need to spray if you're using spinosad for any purpose. And we do recommend it for certain specific things. Not this one. <laughs> you would need to spray early evening so that it would dry off first thing in the morning before the European honeybees come out and that should be safe. But you do need to read the label on all of these materials. And it is an unfortunate assumption that because something is certified organic, that it doesn't have cause injury to uh, non-target organisms is the official term we use for other things that are on there that are getting sprayed when you're spraying for this thing, non-target organisms. So yes, you can injure bees. Yes, you can injure beneficials with spinosad. Even neem can be harmful. It's incredibly popular. Neem oil and neem extract can be harmful to beneficials and other non-target organisms. So in general, the safest time of day to spray is right at the end of the day before dusk, because anything you spray at that time will have a chance to dry on the plant. It won't be there wet and directly harming the beneficial insects. More to the point, one, don't spray things that aren't recommended for it. And so here we have a, you know, a publication from UCA and are telling you don't use this material. Uh, it isn't necessary anyway, in my opinion, but be, if you are going to use something like that, read the label, read the precautions. And unfortunately for a long time, pesticides weren't tested or labeled with respect to their impact on non-target organisms. For a number of years now, they have labeled them with respect to pollinators. So that's important. That's really good to know. But pollinators aren't the only beneficial organisms out there. Whenever you spray, you're going to do some harm to some beneficials. And I have you know, gone through, I've dug in to see, has neem been tested? Has spinosad been tested for this, 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 this? They test them for some, but not as much as we would like. And you should just be aware that a pesticide, organic or otherwise, is always a last resort. You go through the integrated pest management process of identifying the pest, monitoring the pest to make sure it's increasing to the point where you might need to take action. Take the safest course of action first, which is gonna be mechanical removal or mechanical actions or something like that. Change the environment if you have to that is causing the pest or disease to increase. And finally, if none of that's working and the pest is likely to harm your yield or the cosmetic appearance of the plant in a very adverse way, then 
then you go find the least toxic alternative that you would use. You read the label carefully, you follow the directions, and you do it as little as necessary, as infrequently as necessary to get the job done. And generally, for home gardeners, you don't need to use pesticides. It's rare to need to use pesticides. Generally speaking, people are going to that first, and that frustrates me. Uh, they probably could change something about the environment, uh, in, do something to enhance beneficials, just use mechanical means. How many times during the course of a year at the Davis Garden Show do we tell you to blast things off with water? Well, it really works, and it's real safe. You know, it doesn't harm anything uh, when you do that. So. Um, if you do resort to a pesticide, do some research first. And here's something I find myself telling people all the time that they aren't aware of. Any pesticide you're looking at, you can find a PDF of that label online. So you don't have to squint at the six-point font <laughs> and try to read the 27-page booklet that is attached to the bottle of the pesticide. You don't have to pull it off of there. Please don't do that. That's terrible for retailers. Just type the exact product into your phone or your computer at home and read about it read the precautionary statements, read the environmental hazards, and read how to use it safely. And you may decide you don't want to do that. You may decide that it will work in your situation. I find more and more people wanting to buy ready-to-use, already mixed-up versions, and there's a reason for that. That's the safest way for you as the applicator to apply it. But the first thing is read about it. Because I remember when I used to do consultations, and I found that someone would have a pest problem. They'd ask what to use for it. I would say, let's go see what you already have in your garage. And I would go in with them to their garage where they store their arsenal of pesticides and see the most amazing array of pest control products that people had bought over the years. Typically, they'd bought a 16-ounce bottle of concentrate, used it once, closed it up and put it in the garage five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> or you buy the house and you go out to the garage <laughs> and you have other people's poisons out there. Yeah, I, so by they, the time I cleaned out my garage, there was stuff that I swear was 40 years old. Yeah, and so you have to take that to you know, particular hazardous waste disposal yeah. data dump and so on. And generally, one, use ready-to-use products, even though it's a more expensive way to go at the outset, you probably don't need this pesticide more than once anyway. In most cases, you probably don't need it. So we're happy to discuss your pest problems and help steer you towards non-chemical solutions. And if you do use a pesticide, it's really important to do some research before you do. It always amazes me that when you go to the pharmacist to pick up a medicine a doctor has prescribed, typically they won't let you get it until you consult with a pharmacist. But you can walk <laughs> right over in that same store and buy a restricted use material pesticide and waltz right home and spray it without anybody going over the label with you. That amazes me. But that's quite a digression, wasn't it? Okay, Lois, what else is in the mailbag? <laughs> I want to take a moment, just a moment, to ask your advice on how to safely dispose of unused pesticides. Your local dump has a place to take them, and many municipalities will actually pick them up on specific days. So you should call your local waste service provider and ask them that exact question about not just your pesticides, but your paints and your solvents and the other things you need to get rid of, and they'll tell you exactly. So in Yolo County, you take them to the dump, and there's a place there that you take them. But you don't just arrive there with them. Call first to find out exactly what the, what the deal is. And actually, uh, there is a, if you go to their website, there's a, a list the times when the hazardous waste drop-off is open. You don't have to have an appointment. You can just bring it in there. Um, and you can find out what you can recycle there and what you can't. And if you are an elderly person who has no car, <laughs> you can call 
And there are services where folks will come and assist you in getting things. So yeah. don't feel like you can't do something just yeah. because you can't do it yourself. I'll tell you what you can't do. You can't put them in the trash. So uh, oh. look up how to deal with it. But let's prevent this in the first place. I mean, uh, the, uh, most cases people are buying a pest control product that really isn't necessary in my opinion. Okay. Or they've used once and then stopped. I don't know if these things expire yes, or yes, after a certain number of years, they turn into something else. No, or... but they do have a shelf life. They they lose efficacy. With three to five years is considered to be the uh, the lifespan of a pesticide in, your, in storage in your garage. That's a rough figure, but three to five years. So I got information from the shipping seed potatoes. And she writes, we ship every month of the year except September and October. We ship veggie seeds year round. And if you'd further questions, please call us. I love, I love family owned businesses. <laughs> okay. I have a question for you. I think I know the answer, but I want to get your take on it. When people talk about a quote, balanced, unquote, fertilizer, they're talking about things where the numbers are all the same, 555, 333, 27, 27, 27. I don't know what the numbers could be, but that is only balanced numerically. That isn't really balanced according to what the plant needs, is it? Oh, a great summary of it right there. It is balanced numerically. A balanced fertilizer is a term that's used for those which have a, a even have the same numbers or something like that. 5, 10, 10, 10, 10, 5, 10, 10, 10, 12, 12, 12. There is no evidentiary basis for those numbers. It's marketing. Mm -hmm. I can tell you from experience, if you put out a fertilizer on the shelf that is 16, 12, 12, and next to it, you have one that's 16, 5, 8, People will buy the 16, 12, 12 because they think they're getting a better deal or they think those numbers sound more even or balanced. And that's an unfortunate term because it has nothing to do with what plants need or how they use fertilizer. In your area, it may be different, but in our area, the only thing plants typically are deficient in is nitrogen. That's the first number of those three, that 10, 10, 10, 10, 5, 5 is NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, which we call macronutrients because plants use them in large amounts by comparison with say micronutrients like iron things like that which they use in smaller amounts those are often in there too we know that in our soils in the davis area most of the sacramento valley honestly and probably many many if not most places you're listening the one thing your garden plants will be deficient in your vegetables in particular but also your fruit trees are likely to be deficient in the one thing you'll see a yield increase by applying is nitrogen we do know that there is no evidentiary basis for those even numbered products. There's nothing that uses nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in the same proportion. They do know from some crop residue studies, which is where they study, they do analyze what's in the oranges that you're picking off the tree and sending to market. A good example, the citrus industry does use a lot of fertilizer and cares about yield, but doesn't want to pollute the groundwater. So they've done a lot of research on this topic and they know that when you're taking crop out in the case of citrus, at least, it's a three, one, two ratio in the fruit. 3.313 3 nitrogen, 1 phosphorus, 2 potassium. Seems odd because everybody thinks phosphorus leads to flowering and fruit production, and yet it's not using it in the same proportion as nitrogen, right? 3.12, that ratio has actually become the basis for certain uh, citrus foods. The one we sell is very close to a 3.12 ratio. 
So that has actually got some evidentiary basis, at least. And we don't know for sure that, that that's across the board, but at least they've done something that relates to how the plant is using what's coming out of the soil. The key for any of the other nutrients, phosphorus and potassium in particular, is to have a soil test done. If your soil test shows a deficiency in phosphorus, you should figure out a way to apply it, which is a whole nother complicated conversation, but it's almost never deficient in our area. I have never seen a soil test anywhere in the Sacramento Valley, and I've looked at many of them with customers and others, I've never seen one that showed a deficiency in phosphorus. I've never even seen one that showed anything less than a, almost a surplus in phosphorus. If anything, the purpose, in my opinion, of telling you to do a soil test is to clearly demonstrate to you that you don't need to apply phosphorus, and that doing so may lead to excess phosphorus. I have seen soil tests where the bar for phosphorus was all the way up as high as it would go on their software. So it didn't, it, it was above what plants need could be in excess. So there's a tendency to overapply phosphorus fertilizers everywhere. And phosphorus is a pollutant and mining phosphorus is not great for the environment. So we should minimize that if we possibly can. Potassium is rarely deficient. I have not seen soil tests that showed a need for it. Might be some places, might not others. Uh, but nitrogen is the one thing you typically need. Phosphorus should be as low as you possibly can get it on the fertilizer you can buy locally. This is a problem. The, the manufacturers don't like what I'm saying and they don't like this fact that you don't need the phosphorus in there. The number could be 10, 1, 2, and that would be fine in many cases. One of my favorite fertilizers I sell at my garden center is a 10, 1, 3 lawn food. To me, that's an all-purpose fertilizer. They can't get all the phosphorus out of there, and I don't think you have to worry about that. But going out and seeking out high middle number or perfectly balanced, quote, unquote, fertilizers is actually based on misconceptions about how plants use fertilizer and what you're likely to actually need in your soil. The soil test might be useful, but I can tell you what it's likely to show. You primarily need nitrogen. And so when you're standing and looking at the wall of fertilizers, tomato, vegetable food, rose and flower food, azalea, camellia food, this, that, and the other, several of those are practically the same thing. They're practically interchangeable. Many of them have proportions that I don't think are based on any kind of evidence whatsoever. Um, some of them they might add a little more sulfur to because those plants might need a lower pH in our area, the citrus, the azaleas, things like that. So that's all to the good. Trace elements are fine, good, bad, they don't hurt and whether they work is questionable, but it's not a big issue. But I don't like to see the high phosphorus and I don't like to see um, the so-called balanced numbers because I think they're leading to a misconception. I think it's best to look for the highest nitrogen source that you can find at a reasonable price. And if there's some phosphorus in there, okay, that's the way it goes, but don't focus on that. And I'm speaking to you cannabis growers because you guys are polluting the environment with the things you're buying. Because for those of you who are doing these special annual crops, there's a whole market built up to tell you that you thinks that, that thinks you need to apply high levels of phosphorus to get them to bloom and yield and all that stuff. That's simply not true. If you're using a hydroponic medium or a medium that you've completely constructed out of non-soil uh, parts, then you might need more phosphorus than usual. You don't need those very high levels. Phosphorus does not stimulate bloom. It does not increase yield. It does not increase harvest. It's, a, it's something a plant uses for its energy processes. It's a part of ATP and ADP within the plant. A deficiency of phosphorus could reduce yield, but a surplus of it does not increase yield. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.